Welcome to the first episode of Illuminative On Air. I'm Crystal Ekelhock. I'm your host and founder and executive director of Illuminative. I want to take a couple of minutes to tell you a little bit about myself, Illuminative, and to set the table, so to speak, about why we are embarking on this journey with our new podcast. First, I'm a citizen of the Pawnee Nation located in Oklahoma. I'm also a mom, an auntie, a sister, and a lifelong organizer and advocate for Native children, families, and communities. As for Illuminative, we are a national nonprofit organization dedicated to amplifying contemporary Native voices, stories, and issues in pop culture, media, and K-12 education. We do this work in order to fight the profound invisibility, toxic stereotypes, and false narratives that fuel bias and racism against Native peoples. Illuminative was born out of something called the Reclaiming Native Truth Project, a project that I co-led between 2016 and 2018. It was a $3.3 million project that was the largest public opinion research project ever conducted about Native peoples. Our groundbreaking research conducted by some of the top minds in the country explored what are the dominant perceptions that Americans have about Native peoples? Why do they have these perceptions? And how do these perceptions play out in some of our most powerful institutions in this country, like the courts and Congress, as well as in media, education, philanthropy, and in just in everyday life? The findings were astounding. We found that nearly 80% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples, and a significant percentage of Americans aren't entirely sure that Native peoples even exist anymore. 72% of Americans also rarely or never encounter information about Native Americans in their daily lives. Our research found that nearly 90% of schools in this country do not teach about Native Americans past 1900, and our representation in TV and film is less than 0.04%. So what does this all mean? It means that contemporary Native peoples largely do not exist in the consciousness of Americans and in key institutions and within power holders in this country. The consequences of this invisibility are profound as our research found. According to top social psychologists we worked with, Dr. Stephanie Freiberg of the University of Michigan and Dr. Ariane Eason of the University of California at Berkeley, found that this invisibility fuels bias and that plainly spoke, invisibility is the modern form of racism against Native Americans. It has real consequences that often mean that Native Americans are left out of key pieces of legislation and policies that affect our lives, our livelihood, our health, and our rights as citizens of sovereign tribal nations. Our research also found on the flip side of this profound invisibility are toxic stereotypes, false narratives, and myths that also fuel bias from racist sports mascots to the perpetual myths that Native Americans don't pay taxes, that we just get checks for being Native while also enriching ourselves off of tribal gaming. Our research found that these toxic stereotypes and, and myths fuel bias and systemic discrimination. As we face this unprecedented crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are immersed in wall-to-wall -wall media coverage about the devastating impact that COVID-19 is having on communities across the United States, especially in low-income and communities of color. Indian country and Native communities are no exception. However, media coverage has largely been sparse, and even as COVID-19 cases are ticking up into major hotspots in tribal communities such as the Navajo Nation and in some pueblos in New Mexico, we've seen very little coverage. 
We've also seen instances of outright misinformation about federal assistance to Native communities. In this moment, it is critical to ensure that we are amplifying what is happening in Native communities and to ensure that we're hearing the stories of Native peoples from the front lines. Invisibility during this pandemic can literally be a matter of life or death. Illuminative is committed to doing what we can to shine a light not only on the impacts and needs resulting from COVID-19, but we also wanna shine a light on the stories and examples of resilience and strength and hope that is absolutely abound within Indian country. Illuminative has put together a stellar team of Native producers to bring you stories about and from Native communities. And there's never been a better time to start it than right now. We're struggling just like everyone else right now. And as Native peoples, we have pandemics in our blood memory. However, as history and this moment has shown, Native peoples are strong, we are resilient, we are innovative, and when we work together, there are no limits to what we can overcome and create. So let's get on with it. For our first episode, you'll hear radio host Tara Gatewood bring you a conversation with Ogallala Sioux Tribal President Julian Bearrunner about his forward-thinking actions before COVID-19 reached his nation. Also, reporter Allison Herrera will connect you with first responders who are putting their lives on the line to make sure there are enough COVID-19 tests for anyone who needs one. And producer Monica Brain will unpack the CARES Act, which has $8 billion for tribes. But first, I want to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today. I asked him what have been the biggest impacts and surprises since the pandemic started. One of the first stories we did, and I'm really glad because it put it in perspective for us, was to look hard at the 1918 flu epidemic and how that impacted Indian country. When you look at it compared to that, it's a very different story because even though we're consumed right now with the daily story about where the disease is progressing, how many people are impacted and all of that, the other side of that is how remarkably well we're doing. This is really extraordinary. The first models for COVID-19 kind of calculated a 50% uh, social distancing rate. And the United States is now at about 90% social distancing. And what that has resulted in is really effective measures. And across the U.S., it's about 600,000 people have been infected. Indian country is about 1,400 which is about a quarter of 1%. Now, having said that, it's important to note that the numbers are probably higher than that because of the lack of testing. But nonetheless, it's even when you look at um, kind of across the board, we're doing really well. And I think that story, the stories of online resilience and people doing really remarkable things, whether it be the social distancing powwows to humor that's just gone across social media like crazy, I think it really shows kind of the ability of people to fathom something like this and get through it. And so, you know, it is really remarkable to see that the numbers are are still relatively low in Indian country. And I know you guys have done a lot of work and a lot of coverage to kind of address that issue just around data collection, right? And I wonder if you could just kind of give us a sense of why is it hard to even get good data on the number of of COVID-19 cases in Indian country? Sure. Well, and this really goes to how we need to rethink about the Indian health system. And even the word Indian health service is misleading because uh, the Indian health service, people have this imagination of government doctors 
government clinics, even uniforms because of the commissioned officers corps. And that's still part of the system, but it's not even the majority anymore. The majority of the system is now tribal run facilities. In fact, if you look at the facilities treating COVID-19, the Indian Health Service itself is only 17%. And that shift is really remarkable. I don't even think members of Congress understand how important it is that it really is a tribal-led system now. And when you look at that in total, it means tribes don't have to report the numbers to IHS, so there's no data collection there. Urban Indians aren't even counted. There's no mechanism for that. And so right now it's all anecdotal. And those two things combined mean in order to get better data, we have to change the way we collect it and the way we think about the Indian health system. When we kind of pivot and think about New Mexico, Navajo Nation in particular, but, you know, also uh, Zia and San Felipe Pueblo, right, we're making some pretty big headlines recently. And, and it seems like New Mexico um, is, is a hot spot. Sure. Well, I'll start with the Pueblos. Uh, when you think of how this particularly infection spreads, uh, a Pueblo community is just built for it. Urban, very close, very tight communities, lots of family. And because the infection can linger for two weeks before you even know you have it, five days when it's current, people can spread it just very easily. And we're seeing that in the Pueblos. Uh, you mentioned two that have really high infection rates. In fact, uh, the infection rates in those two villages are higher than New York City's, which we all have been reading about. Navajo had a unique situation where there were a number of people at a religious event. And when they came back to different communities from that event, they spread it. And then it just took off like that. That said, Navajo social distancing has been more aggressive than the general populations, including the 56-hour weekend curfews. And that's done a lot to slow even the spread of it at Navajo. And so to kind of pivot now, I mean, in looking at sort of the the other big impacts that COVID-19 is having, let's talk about the economics of it. Can you, what are, what are the big stories happening there in terms of the economic impact? We're not even past the introduction. Uh, the economic impact is going to be the story. And it's going to, I mean, sooner or later, there will be some medical breakthrough, whether it be testing regime or um ability to have a vaccine or other control measure. That's inevitable. It's just a question of when. The economic impact is going to last a lot, long time. It's deep. It's infrastructure related. It's um, when you think of how many tribes across the country have done a great job of employing people through gaming and entertainment and have that suddenly be gone. It's just really long-term disruptive on a scale that we've never seen in our lifetimes before. And could you, for our listeners that might not have seen, there was a really um, important study that came out from Harvard. Right. And they did, for the first time, I think, kind of pegged an Indian gross national product, and that is $50 million. And some said that's probably still on the light side. But nonetheless, that shows the impact. In that study, they said that basically a million jobs are, are lost. And those million jobs, 90% of them are non-Indians who benefit from working at tribal casinos or other related industries. There's interesting conversation going on about how when you look at all this data that people think about the underfunding of the federal government. And in a lot of ways, this economic activity that's happened in Indian country has been subsidizing a lot of the federal activities for decades. And now that it's really exposed, we're seeing firsthand how much Indian country has done on its own for quite a while. It's really remarkable. So, you know, as I also want to explore with you as well, just as a quick update, you know, I'm seeing a lot of stories that, 
federal funds that had been approved for for COVID-19 sort of emergency response efforts on the ground that that funds still aren't making it to the tribes. Is that is that really the case? And if so, what are you hearing and why? Uh, It's across the board and it's not just tribes. The federal government is trying to figure this out as it goes along. They've started to make payments to individuals, and that will include a lot of uh, Native American people. That said, it's still kind of just a mess. How do you ramp up spending billions of dollars without any kind of plan or infrastructure? And that's exactly what the federal government is doing. The two areas that are most impactful for tribes right now are payroll protection. And a lot of uh, organizations, including Indian Country Today, have applied for that to give some relief for a couple of months for your uh, salaried employees. The big rub for there is that the Treasury Department decided that casinos that employ less than 500 people, which under the law would qualify, they uh, made the regs so that tribes don't qualify. And as I mentioned, that's been such an important economic activity that as one person put it to me in a, a conversation the other day, we cannot afford to let this one go. We're going back to Congress to get a fix because it so directly impacts our future. The second one is an $8 billion tribal relief fund. And there's also $2 billion being pumped into the Indian Health Service and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The $8 billion was supposed to go to tribal governments. In fact, it's named the Tribal Government Relief Fund. And an early controversy is that in the definition in the law, they cite the um, Indian Self-Determination and Educational Assistance Act And that act includes, by definition, Alaska Native corporations. When the law was passed, they were even with that definition, tribes were hoping that the regulations would be clear that it was for governmental services and not for Alaska Native corporations. But the Interior Department and the Treasury Department made it very clear that they do consider Alaska Native corporations in the same category and want to fund them for that. Uh, This becomes very complex for tribes, partly because Alaska Native tribes would like to apply, mostly village councils. And on top of that, you have Alaska Native villages, Alaska Native village regional corporations, and then Alaska Native regional corporations. So the same constituent group basically could apply for the services three times, as opposed to lower 48 tribes that could just do it once. And that's a, a really big fight playing out in this very moment in time. And I'm, I'm guessing this is going to be the story to watch this coming week. Right. Yeah, it's turned really ugly. And it's interesting because um, one of the ways that I think people are missing this is that when the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and the Indian Self-Determination Act were both passed into law, there really wasn't Alaska tribes. A lot of the reservations that existed turned over their lands to corporations. So there's a different history that needs to be played out that Alaska hasn't really solved itself yet. What's the role of tribal governments in a society that's built around corporations? And that is a very different conversation than what do we do with this pool of money and how do we solve it? And until you have that first one, you never can get to the second one. Well, as we kind of think about wrapping up, you know, I want to get your perspectives because, you know, Illuminative, our mission is really about amplifying Native voices and stories and issues really to fight against the profound erasure and invisibility of people, of Native peoples in in modern American society, right? That really ends up fueling bias and racism and affects us in all different ways. And so, you know, we launched this podcast during this this moment, this pandemic, to really ensure that, you know, we can do everything we can to help amplify, again, Native voices and, and what's happening in Indian country with regard to COVID-19. And, and one of the things that, you know, I've been wondering about in, in talking with you, you guys have done such an amazing job on your reporting, but 
you know, what's your viewpoint over as you look across the spectrum of, of media and journalism right now? Are you seeing this story in Indian country being covered? Tell us what you're seeing out there. Sure. Well, I should first should mention our big venture. We took this moment to launch a new national television program. And uh, within the first week, we secured prime time. And it's at 7 p.m. on FNX Network. But just today, we've got a couple other major networks that are talking to us about adding uh, more stations. So we actually have a chance of getting into the PBS national schedule very, very quickly, unbelievably quickly. And I think that's another way to kind of get that story out there. Media in general, and you know, I, I shouldn't admit this in a podcast because it's permanent, but I've really given up on trying to worry about what the national media is going to do. They're never going to get around until there's a diversity of voices in the media. They're just not going to understand the context and the larger picture. And some do it very well, but it's really rare and you get you smile when that. Uh, frankly, one of the things that really concerns me is how we share those stories. When the media does a story that is um, a grade level C, people still share it on social media because they're so pleased to see themselves. And I think we have to start ignoring the media like they've been ignoring us. As this podcast continues, you'll hear more from Mark and others at Indian Country Today who are reporting on what's happening to and in Native communities. You can catch all the amazing reporting they are doing, as well as their brand new daily news show at IndianCountryToday.com. You may recognize the voice we have next, Tara Gatewood. She is Isleta Pueblo and the host of Native America Calling. It's a live call-in radio show that's been on the air for 25 years. Here's her conversation with Ogallala Sioux President Julian Bearrunner. We are asking you to help us stop the possible spread by taking precautionary measures. Stay in your home. Exercise social distancing. Stay six feet from others while in public. If you are sick, stay home and self-isolate. Please take COVID-19 seriously. Essential travel you're hearing part of the Oglala Lakota Nation's effort to curb the spread of the novel coronavirus. It's from one of the tribe's Facebook videos highlighting the efforts of their COVID-19 response task force. It's the sound that echoed through the community several weeks ago as tribal service vehicles made their way through the different villages carrying the message of staying safe and vigilant against the coronavirus. Julian Bearrunner is the 43rd Oglala Sioux Tribe's president. He says this approach is vital. Some people don't have the radio. Some people don't have social media. And they rely on just, you know, the word on the street. So, you know, we have taken that venture of going out and actually doing this throughout the communities. Bearrunner said at first they were sharing this message from the back of a truck, but not everyone was hearing the cautionary dispatch. So they took it up a notch. We brought in our medical personnel who brought in a rescue truck that would sound the siren and that was drawing the people's attention because they were hearing the siren. So they were coming to the window, they were coming to the doors and they were standing there and they were listening. It's been working. It's been getting a lot of the attention and the message out to the people. And for some Native nations, getting the word out on the severity of the virus has helped keep the number of COVID-19 positive cases low and in some cases at zero. Bearrunner said staying ahead of the virus is critical given the many obstacles his tribe faces when there isn't a pandemic. 
we have limited housing. We have, uh, you know, we have, what, four respirators here at IHS. We have uh, limited manpower uh, within IHS. We have, you know, our, our ambulance service that is very uh, always underfunded. So, you know, we have a lot of issues at, at stake. And, and due to the shortage of housing, we have, a, you know, sometimes a large influx of family members living in one household. So if one person is to contract that and take that home, you know, we look at maybe not even having to quarantine just one household, but, you know, may possibly quarantine a full community which, you know, is going to be, you know, that's going to be a great hardship on us as a people. So I'm I'm hoping that we can really stay where we're at today, but, you know, also just, you know, watching and, and, and praying for our, our relatives that are, you know, currently experiencing these hardships and learning from the things that they're doing to help to implement to ensure that we're ready here. The Oglala Sioux Tribe was one of the first sovereign tribal nations in the country to take action. On March 8, the tribe issued an executive order establishing a response team and suspending travel for the tribe's employees. The order also strongly recommended that the general public refrain and postpone visits to their reservation. It also urged tribal members to limit off-reservation travel. I asked him why the tribe decided to make this declaration during a time when other state and tribal entities had yet to move forward in this way. Anything that I can do to to protect our tribe, to protect the, the people, the, the land, you know, is, is always number one for me. And um, it was challenging, you know, to have to, you know, but again, you know, relying and, and sitting down with our top officials to decide, is this the right way? Is this something that we should do? And, you know, quickly, you know, developing, like I said, we developed this response team. And this response team, like I said, has been phenomenal in, in bringing information forward to staying on top of the national news, as well as, you know, with the, what CDC is putting out and throughout the nation, you know, what the rest of the world is doing and bringing that together and bringing that forward to the tribal council and, you know, and the tribal council moving forward to, you know, enact these policies and these procedures and these temporary laws that we have to put in effect to protect our people. So, you know, it, it was a difficult decision, but it was a decision that had to be made. The first notion to spring into action against the coronavirus came a week earlier for President Bearrunner. I was at the Reservation Economic Summit, which caused me to just quarantine myself in my room and, you know, and take the preventative measures. And I got an uh, immediate flight home and caused me, you know, to go into quarantine myself to, to ensure that I was not infected and, you know, rapidly sit down with our team here of officials. With what the coronavirus is bringing to our Native nations, our tribal leaders are being asked to go head on with a severe health emergency that tops any they've seen in their time, including President Bearrunner. This was probably never something that I would have ever imagined, you know, that would have fall on the responsibility of any tribal leader or any leader, you know, for that matter. However, you know, when I came into this position, you know, I knew that there was going to be um, hardships and hard times and you know, I, I came in here with uh, on, a, on a spiritual level, on a prayerful level, and that's, you know, that's the way that I've been handling it. And through that process, you know, things that I've prayed about in the past have been happening, things that have been, you know, I'm being put in the right place at the right time. And it's been very humbling, but it's been very uh, rewarding, you know, as, as for us as a people from those things that I prayed about in the beginning to put me to where I'm, I'm at today. 
Now, with that being said, you know, trying to, you know, keep that spiritual foundation of who we are as a people is, is the forefront and the utmost important thing that, that I must do as a tribal leader and to have that faith, you know, to lead the people in, in that manner. Bear Runner added, with everything that's going on because of the virus, he's also seen a transformation of his tribe. This time has really brought our people together. You know, I hear a lot of young people saying, you know, this has really grounded us to, uh, one, to, to be parents, to, you know, really bond within with our family and our structure, and, and to learn to, you know, put their everyday lives away and, and, and really, you know, just grow as a family and, and, and as, as a nation, you know, to to bring back that uh, the original way of life, you know, to really just to stay home and develop that family structure within themselves. This has been very beneficial for them. He also had a message for all Native nations. I just want to, again, stress, you know, the, as Native nations to remember who you are, to remember the things that we've come through, to reiterate what the chiefs of our tribe here at the Oglala Sioux tribe have told us was to to continue to pray, to hold that faith and in those prayers and to continue forward and, and that we too will overcome this as we have everything else, you know, and that just to look out for one another and to to learn, to learn from what other nations are, are battling and what they're up against and what they're going through. You can catch Tara every weekday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time on 70 public radio stations and at NativeAmericaCalling.com. Up next is Allison Herrera. She's a climate editor at Colorado Public Radio, and she is Halon Salanen. When 40-year-old nurse Makem Frazier heard about the new coronavirus spreading in Wuhan, China at the end of 2019, she sprung into action. You know, we started hearing stories out of the state of Washington. That's when I really started getting concerned because, you know, I have relatives. My my mom still lives back on the reservation with my, you know, uncles and my cousins and my aunts that I thought, okay, I need to start preparing because what if this comes here? Frazier packed up her car and took her four-year-old twins to stay with her family in Sanders, Arizona, on the Navajo reservation. That's where she's from. She said it just felt safer. I knew there they would be a little bit better um, isolated from state to city. And and then we made arrangements for us to bring supplies and food and things like that to, to get them prepared as well as my relatives there. Frazier went to work. She and her colleague, Jessica Tsabatse, who is from Zuni Pueblo and is a physician's assistant, have been testing and screening people for COVID-19 at a drive through facility organized by Presbyterian Health Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. During the last few weeks, they were testing almost 800 patients a day. Jessica says it's a privilege to be working on the front lines. We are one of the top five cities to be testing the largest amount per capita across the United States. We have been the single organization that has been able to test 40% of our New Mexican population for COVID-19. So we're very happy to provide that service and um, be able to provide any data uh, to our community. And data is important. 
A recent breakdown of cases along racial lines in New Mexico shows that more than 35 percent of cases are among Native American communities in the state. Jessica says that some of the challenges communities face have to do with the number of tests available. So a lot of the barriers come down with the number of test kits. Um, then often the whether they are 638 contracted, independent, or an IHS facility, it's the test, the number of test kits available. Usually that number is only a fraction of what their population of the community is. Makem sees those same barriers. She said the number of cases of COVID-19 have doubled and tripled almost every day. That's when tribes in New Mexico reached out to the Department of Health for help. And that's how she got involved. And so the DOH reached out to us because we had been so successful with our screening site. Um, and we said, let's do it. Let's get out there and help. I think for um, myself, and I can, and as well as Jessica, um, it was, you know, being Native people and being able to provide this service um, was important to us because we, we understand the lack of resources that is out in Indian country. Makem said another challenge is the language. She's talked to elders in her community who say most of the information about COVID-19 is in English, and it needs to be in Navajo, too. Another challenge is the concept of social distancing. Teach social distancing and having to say, hey, listen, you can't visit your relatives right now because of this, this disease. Um, it is really hard to educate tribal members um, and, and have them understand that. Makem and Jessica acknowledge the seriousness of this situation, but feel like being out there with the community is the right thing to do, despite the risks. Absolutely. There's always that fear, um, just like a, a soldier going into war, right? There's always that fear, um, and there's always that risk, but part of it is this is, I, I signed up to be, um, clinician, and this is my battle that I have to fight, mm-hmm. but I have to make sure that I'm protecting myself. Makem is glad both her children are spending this time with relatives and doing the things that she did when she grew up in Sanders. They're, you know, around horses, they're around what I kind of, I grew up with, and so they have the opportunity during this time to learn their culture. They are um, learning to speak the language because they're with my my relatives. And so um, it, it's kind of an opportune time for them, even though the rest of the world is in chaos. Both acknowledge that it will be a while before things go back to quote unquote normal and that life after this pandemic passes will be very different. The lesson is to reflect on what's most important. Globally, it's a big event. There's a lot of indigenous communities around the world who are suffering from this COVID-19 virus, and we are not exempt from it, unfortunately. Yes, it's a big event. This is the thing that I fear most, is that a lot of folks don't understand it the way they should. Hey, everyone. I'm Monica Brain, journalist and radio producer. I'm Assiniboine and Lakota. You just heard United States Representative Deb Holland. She's Laguna Pueblo and one of the first Native women to be elected to the House. 
Holland is home right now in Albuquerque, but at the end of March, she and three other natives in the House of Representatives voted on the most recent stimulus package, the CARES Act. And it's my job to give you everything you need to know about it and what it means for Native America. It's the largest stimulus package ever passed. The hope is that the $2.2 trillion will help with the crisis created from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not just money for medical care. It also involves a lot related to the economy because our economy is directly tied to this crisis. And right now, it's not doing too well. And many tribes and tribal citizens are struggling as well. Most of our casinos are closed, and the Indian Health Service is already chronically underfunded. A 2018 U.S. Government Accountability Office report found that IHS spends an average of $4,000 per patient. To put that into perspective, the Department of Veterans Affairs spends $8,000, and Medicare spends $13,000 per patient. So this pandemic is putting an already struggling system in a worse place. That's where the stimulus package may help. So of this enormous $2.2 trillion pie, there's $8 billion for tribes. That's a lot of money. But the thing is, tribes and Native organizations lobbied for a lot more. Will this $8 billion be enough to help tribes? Probably not. But it's a start. And there's going to be more legislation in the pipeline. Before we get into the tribal provisions, I wanted to mention a few things that could help you personally. There's a stimulus check coming to most Americans. Think of it as an extra per cap from Chairman Uncle Sam. The only catch is that you have to make sure that you filed your 2018 and 2019 taxes. And there's an income threshold. So the more you make, the less you get. Couples who make over $150,000 a year won't see a stimulus check. The legislation has a bunch more that could really help during this challenging time. Weekly unemployment payments will increase by $600. Also, gig and freelance workers might be eligible for unemployment as well, which is not usually the case. The issue right now is that the system is overburdened, and many people are waiting on hold for hours and hours or getting booted off the online systems because so many people are trying to apply at once. Some good news is that taxes aren't due until July 15th, and the government won't be collecting payments or interest on federal student loans until September. If you own a small business, you could get an emergency loan or grant to help with expenses, including payroll. And if you already have a small business loan, payments and interest are suspended for six months. Initially, it seemed like tribal casinos that had less than 500 employees were going to qualify for small business relief under this package. But the Small Business Administration put up some guidelines, and it said that casinos are not eligible for this program. President Trump said he would take a look at it, so we'll see how it plays out. Okay, let's get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly is going to help tribes. And bear with me on this one. It can get confusing, but I'm going to do my best to make it simple and clear. Some of the headlines have said that there's $8 billion for tribes, and others have said $10 billion. $8 billion is for tribes, and the other $2 billion is for agencies that support tribes, like the Indian Health Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the Bureau of Indian Education. When big packages come from the federal government, like disaster relief, everybody lines up to get their share. States, cities, municipalities, and organizations. Tribes routinely have to stand in the same line as everybody else competing with everyone else. So a tribe that maybe has 1,000 citizens might be competing with a city that has 50,000 people and the resources to submit a better application for funding. 
Advocates in Indian country have been saying for years that tribes shouldn't have to compete. That is part of the trust responsibility to provide for tribes that we are separate. So $8 billion for tribes is a good deal. Here's a few numbers on the agencies that are also getting money. In the package, there's $300 million for housing, which is helpful to address overcrowding situations in Native America, particularly during the time when we really need to have extra space. On the education front, $69 million is going to the Bureau of Indian Education, and $20 million is for tribal colleges. And food distribution, or as some of you might know, commods, is getting $100 million. Each side, Republicans, Democrats, and the White House, came to the table with different numbers, and the final compromise was specifically $8 billion for tribes. I asked U.S. Representative Tom Cole, who is Chickasaw, about the different numbers being thrown around about who came to the table asking for what. You know, who was on what side where really doesn't matter. A lot of it, in a legislative negotiation, a lot is, can you educate uh, people that have a different point of view and move them in your direction. And I would say in this one, we broadly did. And uh, I can't think of another instance in any kind of package where we had anything like $8 billion uh, going to tribal governments to uh, mitigate the damages that both coronavirus has caused them directly and then the economic impact on their economies and their uh, you know base for supporting their own tribal government services. So is it enough? No, it's never enough. Um, but uh, is it a huge improvement over what we've had before? Yes, it is. And is it primarily a bipartisan achievement? No question. Did you have to educate the White House about the importance of this money? Well, let's just say we worked with the White House, yes. Uh, and you know, we had some good help in the White House. Again, uh, if we had not had people willing to listen uh, frankly, one of the persons I worked with was the new chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who used to represent uh, Eastern Band of Cherokees in his congressional seat. Uh, you know, has more awareness uh, about tribal issues than because of that uh, than most people know. And he was extremely helpful in moving that number in the right direction. I also talked with CEO of the National Congress of American Indians, Kevin Allis, who's Forest County Potawatomi community, about all these numbers. I asked him how far $8 billion could go during this time of great need, and he said $8 billion wasn't going to be nearly enough. He also brought up a big concern he has about the language in the bill that dictates how tribes are going to be allowed to use the money. It's only supposed to be used for expenses that occur as a result of COVID-19. The statute says necessary expenditures because of COVID-19 that are unbudgeted in relation to the tribe's most recent budget and occur during this time frame. This means that tribes can only use the money for expenses related to COVID-19. They cannot replace the money lost due to COVID-19, like casino revenues. For example, if a tribe runs a senior center with profits from the casino, they can't use the money from the $8 billion pot for the senior center's regular expenses. They could use the money to buy extra masks and scrubs, but not for food unless it was extra as a result of the pandemic. This puts a lot of bureaucratic red tape on funds that tribes desperately need right now. Alice says there might be a way to get around this if tribes create brand new COVID-19 emergency budgets. But it all comes down to how the U.S. Department of Treasury interprets the law and divvies up the money. 
One interesting thing is that none of the money allocated to tribes can be distributed as a per cap check. But the fact remains, tribes will need more money. On Native America Calling, United States Senator Tom Udall, who's from New Mexico, said he expected there to be more bills and more money for tribes. My expectation is we have to come back to this again. That's all the talk. We're going to have another bill. Uh, we don't know, matter of weeks. Um, and the problems we're having with this bill, whatever they are, if they're resources or if they're other issues, we will try to take care of them in the next bill. On the House side, I asked Representative Deb Holland when she will go back to fight for more money for tribes. We're fighting for it right now <laughs> through Zoom and through, you know, our conference calls. And I have half of my staff is in D.C. Half of my staff is here in, in New Mexico. So we're all uh, every day we're on the phone together. We're each reaching out. We're making phone calls to constituents and phone calls to various, you know, organizations just to uh, make sure that we're moving the ball forward as we should. I, we're not losing a moment on, you know, every single moment that has passed, I should say, is well spent uh, working to make sure that we can get through this. I didn't think you were back in Albuquerque, kicking back and <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. In fact, I haven't. Uh, you know, I came back from D.C. after the last vote. And Governor Lujan Grisham, there's a big sign at the airport that says if you're coming in from another state, you have to self-isolate for two weeks. So I'm, I've been at my house uh, away from everyone. I'm not allowed to go anywhere. So I'm here and uh, there's nothing else better to do than to work on making sure that everybody can get through this. Is it harder to wheel and deal over Zoom? No, it, you know, sometimes I feel like it is um, because, look, I'm on the House Oversight Committee, and uh, if we saw that the U.S., you know, that the administration was messing up on the funding package, we could haul them into the hearing room and ask them questions about it, right? And um, and we can't do that right now. So um, it is a bit more difficult to, you know, get your point across and to, um, you know, we've written a lot of letters. We've signed on to many, many letters that are circulating around to make our point and to protect our people. So there you have it, the most recent stimulus package and what it can mean for you and your tribe. We'll be keeping an eye on this as our podcast continues. Thanks for listening. Monica is Assiniboine and Lakota, and she's recently started her own podcast called Natives on a Budget. You can check it out at nativesonabudget.com. Well, that'll do it for our very first episode of the Illuminative On Air podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please consider giving us five stars and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and hosted by Tara Gatewood, Allison Herrera, Monica Brain, and myself, Crystal Echohawk. Our executive producer is Heather Ray, and our operations coordinator is Lincoln Cornshucker. Sound engineering by Paul V. Many thanks for the musical contributions of Superman, Samantha Crane, and Torn Jacobs. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, 
the Shakopee Mettawakanton Sioux Community, and the Meese Family Foundation. If you want to reach out and learn more about us, please visit Illuminatives.org. And finally, I'm sending my prayers and thoughts to all of our loved ones impacted by these world events. We'll see you next time.